One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to Stage Door Johnny, the podcast about theatre and life. And life in theatre. No, and life and life in the theatre. I have a little summer cold, I'm afraid, so I'm sorry if I sound like Dracula. Oh, you know who I sound like? I sound a bit like this week's guest, who has a magnificent instrument. My guest this week is the magnificently enjoyable actor Dominic West. Is there a more purely enjoyable actor? going around town than Dominic West. I don't think there is. Did you see him, by any chance, in Emily Mortimer's adaptation of Nancy Mitford's Pursuit of Love? Oh, my goodness. He, there wasn't a second he was on screen that you weren't sort of delighted by him. You know Dominic from a whole lifetime of playing magnificent leading roles, the, the part that made him a star in one of the greatest TV shows ever made when he played Jimmy McNulty in The Wire, Prince Charles in The Crown he's been doing recently, Noah Soloway in The Affair. Uh, oh my God, he was, oh God, incredibly difficult to forget, even though I wish I could. He played serial killer Fred West. No relation. And uh, and Richard Burton, just some of the many parts he's played. We have worked together three times in a quite bad movie about rowing called True Blue, which the title makes it sound like a porn film, and perhaps it should have been a porn film. It might have been more entertaining. Uh, oh, and In the Affair, in which I played his awful doppelganger, <laughs> which sounds about right. Uh, but first of all, as we start by discussing in Christopher Marlowe's Tamburlaine at the Royal Shakespeare Company in, oof, I have no idea, a long time ago, when he was still a drama student at a Guildhall, and I was on stilts, which we discuss. And like a lot of actors, so many actors, it's on stage that Dominic's heart still lies. He once said, uh, what I wanted to do in my earlier 20s, I'm going to do a Dominic West impression, yeah, what I wanted to do in my earlier 20s was experimental and radical theatre, but I didn't do it because I went off and got high instead. And maybe I did a bit too much partying and I should have... No, actually, no, I love partying. Fuck it. <laughs> that was quite good. Dom and I sat down to chat in his beautiful house in Wiltshire in June of this year, 2023. And we had a great chat about his life on stage from a nine-year-old boy making his dad cry in The Winslet Boy to snogging Alan Cumming on Broadway. Here he is. Here's Dominic West. Gentlemen, Gentlemen of the Stage, of the stage Door Journey Company, Company, this is your, your Act, Act One, one beginner's, beginner's Call. Mr. West, West and Mr. Cake to the, to the stage, stage, please, this, this is, is your, your beginners. beginners. Have, Have a great, great show. show. 
Don, bless you. Thank you so much for letting me into your beautiful house. I'm looking out the window towards endless woodland, which is presumably all sort of West territory. No, Um, it's not. (laughs) You're very sweet to let me in and do this. And we, of course, have done a play together. Mm-hmm. When you were at Guild Hall, am I getting this right? In mm-hmm. your third year, mm-hmm. drama school at Guild Hall, you were co-opted, you and some classmates, into the RSC's Barbican stint of Christopher Marlowe's Tamburlaine, in which I had already spent a year sort of supporting Anthony Sher as Tamburlaine, pulling his chariot as one of the <laughs> pampered jades of Asia. And you came and walking, in walking around on stilts. And walking around on stilts. And that's right. Paint, painters' stilts for painting your ceiling. That's yeah. right. Did you do any stilt work? No, 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 no. We were, you weren't we, allowed the stilts. We were strictly spear carriers, and we literally were spear carriers in turbans. I don't suppose it would happen now. <laughs> I don't <laughs> suppose but it would. We were literally spear carriers, and it was amazing because I went to Guildhall partly because it was attached to the. RSC, or is next door to the RSC at the right. Barbican. And I thought, you know, maybe we'd get involved in some of the shows, which we didn't at all until that final year when we got to fill out, we were there to fill out the stage because the, the stage, the Barbican stage was bigger than, Huge. where were you before, at the Swan? Or? Uh, yes, we were in the Swan, not in the main house. So I think we had to fill out yes. as, as African dancers or, or whatever we were. <laughs> Mongolian. There was some dubious cultural stuff in there, now, there was, which I'm not sh- entirely sure you'd get away with. You certainly wouldn't get away with it, but it no. was great. It was great fun at the time. Do you remember it fondly? Yes, it was fantastic. Yeah, we got to dance and drum and run around in turbans <laughs> and actually carry a spear. I mean, I did carry yes. a spear. Yes, I loved it. And, and also because Anthony Sher was from uh, reading Year of the King was a huge hero of mine. And, yeah. And, it was amazing to watch him work, and he, he was extraordinary in that play. And it's a fairly unwatchable play, but he was, he was amazing. It, for anyone who doesn't know the play, it's the rise of a Scythian shepherd who goes on this extraordinary killing crusade. It's based on sort of, you know... Um, well, he existed, Tamblaine. He, he did, he, he he did exist. He conquered half the world. You're absolutely right. But I suppose perhaps Marlowe had kind of taken... Uh, 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 who was the great mogul? Uh, Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. And all, you know, his, his world domination. No, I think there was a Tamblaine. Oh, it was definitely a Tamblaine. But I wonder whether he conflated the two right. myths. He did, but I think it was... It's in, a, it's in three... Incredibly long parts, isn't it? And yes. Terry Hands had made it to one. Made it to one, but it's essentially one massive bloody battle after mm. another. So trying to make it sort of not monotonous, particularly as Marlowe's famous mighty lines are not Shakespeare's, but they have a very they sort of crash like waves on the shore, don't they? Yeah. And Anthony Sher was incredible in that. And one of the things that always struck me about him in that was how unprecious. He was. Do you remember that? He would sort of, you know, we'd all be behind uh, 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 the curtain while he was kind of setting fire to villages. And then he'd sort of come behind the curtain and show us his bum or something, yeah. you know, and they just carry on being. Yeah. I mean, what, one thing that struck us, I remember, was there was, I don't know how, there was probably a dozen of us spear carriers running around, right. all looking the same. And uh, in turbans and. Uh, <laughs> 
And him say, and you know, him <laughs> reciting pages of screeds, Marlo, screeds of fucking um, blank verse, and and him turning around in the middle of a big speech saying, "Where's Adam?" And it, Adam was, uh, you know, after Adam James actually, and he he was missing that day, and so it was extraordinary. And there was thirty people on stage, including <laughs> lots of people on stilts, and including you That's right. on stilts. And he noticed, you know, he noticed that, and that Did we all he? thought that was amazing. We wow. thought. And he used to come into the guild hall and into our sort of gym and he'd, he'd work out and do rope work and stuff. Yeah. It was great. It was everything I wanted, every reason I became an actor and wanted to train. We, when we first started, we would do these intense circuit training classes in the gym in Stratford-on-Avon. He would join in with that. He was fit as a butcher's right. dog. Yeah. Despite, as we said, being in his cocaine years, which he later revealed in his right. autobiography. Yeah. I do remember one extraordinary moment when he had just conquered some other Eastern potentate and uh, we had to lift him up onto two actors' shoulders. Quite a diminutive man, Tony was. And he was standing, giving this extraordinary, this was in Stratford, extraordinary oration. I remember, he, you know, the sort of veins slightly writhing at the side right. of his neck and eyes bulging as he could do that extraordinary kind of flashing eyes. yeah those things would just sort of pop out of his head like eggs and he fell and he hit the ground the swan theater like a plumber's bag and and there was a terrible moment of sort of you know mighty superman is reduced to tiny Scythian shepherd once more with a sprained ankle who's who's just made a bit of a tit of himself he picked himself up and he had to do this extraordinary seduction speech of an actor called Jack Claff. And he suddenly realizing that there'd been some obvious and unignorable fuck up, went into incredible acting overdrive, like I've never seen anyone do before, to sort of, exactly like someone who'd fallen over in a race and had to sprint to try and catch up with the pack. And it was some of the best acting I've ever been close to on stage. It was completely mesmeric and he didn't move. And so afterwards, we came off thinking, well, what a breakthrough. He doesn't need to stand on those people's shoulders to be so extraordinary. And the next day, we were called in an hour earlier to practice the getting onto and the staying on of the shoulders. He was not going to fall off those shoulders again. So rather than sort of, you know, what we all thought was this great, you know, revelation of what you actually don't need to do in terms of spectacle... He was like doubling down on the. Yeah. That's how he wanted it. Yeah. There was a lot of spectacle. There was a lot. Coming head first down a rope, swinging at one point, Badger's Eth swinging. God, you remember this so much better than I did. spectacle. He was, he was a sort of Olivier type. I mean, I, I just thought he was amazing. I wish he was still around and I, I wish I'd seen all his other stuff. I saw most of what he did, but I thought he was just great. He yeah. was so much about spectacle and, yeah. and transformation and everything that. I wanted to do at that age and yes. have since well, failed we- to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could talk about all that. Do you remember the first time you were ever in a theatre? Yeah, I think so. I think it was the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield and there was, yeah. it was a ghost, was it called Ghost Train or something? In the 70s uh, when I think the Crucible, the Crucible had been ripped off and lost all its money and I think it might have been at that point that it was... Or it was just before. Anyway, it was it was the ghost train, and I remember being terrified. And it was 
in the Crucible, which is probably my favourite theatre, and I've, I've acted in it three times, and it was, um, I, I, I remember that was, yeah, I think that was my first time. Do you remember how old you, roughly? Uh, I should think, I don't know, six or seven or something And like so that. being terrified didn't put you off? Did it make you sort of lean in a little bit? Yeah, I don't remember, but I, yeah, I remember being thrilled rather yeah. than terrified. Right. And, and then, but I had this extraordinary, my, my mum was, uh, she was an amateur actress yeah. and, uh, in Sheffield. And she, as well as having seven children with not much help, and we grew up, uh, my mum and dad and, and seven of us in a, in a lovely house just on the outskirts of Sheffield in, in the Peak District. And um, she played, as well as raising seven kids, she played all these parts, including Rosalind and St. Joan and, and wow. uh, in this theatre group called Theatre Focus, um, which was an amateur group full of a motley collection of, of great people, including my cousins, yeah. one of whom was a singer, and then a, a local surgeon. I remember playing Shylock. Uh, my mum played Portia. And so I, I had, I, I've been thinking about it just since you, you contacted me. And, and I did have a very, quite a theatrical youth. You know, right. it, was, it was very much, that's what got me into acting was my mum's amateur theatre group in Sheffield. And we used to perform at the Sheffield University Drama Studio. Which I discovered, Stephen Daldry, who was directing The Crown recently, um, he started out there because he was at Sheffield University. So anyway, we, I did all these plays with my mum and she used to get us and me and my sisters in to do much what the RSC was doing with us with Tamburlaine, which is fill out the stage. Right. And we'd sing Hey Nonny Knowing As You Like It and prance around. So I remember this was probably my next experience of theatre, was watching her doing things like St. Joan and, and, and crying as she was led off to be executed or burnt at the stake. And my little sister going, Mummy! Oh. And uh, my dad got involved and their friends were involved. So it was quite a, you know, it was a, and it was a sort of, I suppose, a relic of Edwardian theatre in a way. And there was backstage and lots of lake for the lines and grease paint. And, <laughs> and I, that's where I fell in love with the theatre. Uh, and um, What do and, you remember of her as an actress? God, that's a, uh, I, I, she was good and powerful, and I mean, she played Rosalind, St. Joan. She a, played where they did lots of Terence Rattigan. They did reviews where she'd sing "My Old Man Said Follow the Van," and you know all this while raising kids and mm. being a housewife and doing it with lots of interesting. You know, there was a guy who was a gardener who was probably homeless, and there was a wonderful old. The director was this wonderful woman called Frida Mello, who was hugely important to my, um, as a mentor to me when I was a kid. We did The Winslow Boy, and she was, she really championed me, and, and I loved her very much. And she had a wonderful sister called Eileen, who was, I remember her dressing room when we did these shows was just covered in Guinness bottles. And I mean, a lot of people were pissed at the time. And it was, it was Sheffield in the 70s, and it was, it was just magic. Yeah. I, I, I loved it. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And I didn't realize that until recently. That's, that's sort of where I got to love the theatre. Do you think your mum had any thwarted ambitions to be a professional? Totally, yeah, oh. totally. And, and, uh, but was, grew up in, a, you know, in the 50s in Sheffield, a very Catholic family of Irish immigrants. My grandparents were both from Ireland and uh, had to study law at, at university in Dublin, which she was then, um, you know, and she wasn't allowed to 
in those days, Catholics weren't allowed to go to Trinity because it was a Protestant university and she had to get dispensation from the bishop in order to be able to go. And the bishop said, yes, she can study law there, but she's not allowed to take part in any extracurricular activities. And Mm. and so she couldn't do theatre or anything. And she hated law. She was into acting and music. And so absolutely, yes, thwarted ambition. I remember her saying, you know, to, to me and friends later on in life, she said, I just can't believe the opportunities you people have. And, that the, yeah. you know, the, it would have been inconceivable for me to be allowed mm. to, to do this as a, a profession when she was... So how, she was how did she... What was she like watching you on stage? Amazing. I loved it. Absolutely total support and, and adored it. Right. Just loved it when I went to Guildhall and loved the fact that I, my dad wanted me to be a, a barrister and she... Yeah, she was delighted, and and uh, except when I did television, when she'd say, "What, what, what the hell are you doing? You're, you know, that's not acting. You've got to do theatre. You've got to do Shakespeare." Oh. And um, and that sort of has stuck with me as a as a prejudice I've always had. But <laughs> uh, but she, yeah, and my elder sister as well. The five sisters I've got, and the eldest sister which was was very good as, as an acting. And uh, I remember seeing her play Emma, a Jane Austen adaptation. Is she in the same company? And she was great, but and I think she went for drama school and didn't get in and then sort of didn't pursue it. But, uh, you know, it was still the days of, I suppose we were still in the days where women, middle-class women, aspirational mm. women would not, mm. you know, easily go into mm. to acting. So Winslow Boy, when you're nine-ish yeah. years yeah. old, same company. Same company. And was your mum in that show too? I, yes, I think she must have been. Gosh. I just remember the... I think it was just a scene from the... No, did we do the whole thing? I can't remember because they used to do reviews of right. the years between the wars and the years after the wars <laughs> and lots of Rattigan, and lots of J.B. Priestley. Yeah, and yeah. I remember the lawyer guy, a guy called Henry Ibbotson, who was a wonderful actor, amateur actor, who um, who was very dashing and glamorous and, and I, I thought he was amazing. And uh, so I remember him. I don't quite remember my mum, but I remember doing that scene where he's interrogating the boy he's met yeah. him for the first time and and he the boy gets very emotional and says i didn't do it i didn't do it i didn't do it and bursts into tears and uh, and he has this wonderful line at the end ratigan um of course i accept the brief the boy is clearly innocent and blah blah the great you know button that it ends on and uh, i remember my dad who wasn't he was a wonderful father, but he wasn't, he was a sort of 50s father. He was sort of, you know, not touchy-feely. I remember him saying, you know, you made me cry. And I remember oh. thinking, I remember thinking, uh, that touching me very deeply and thinking, that's what I want to do. You know, oh. I, want to make my, I want to make my dad cry. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to spend a career <laughs> trying to make my dad cry. Yeah. That's amazing that he would tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, it was rather, yeah. It is an incredibly powerful, anybody doesn't know that scene or that play. Yeah. It's an amazing part for a young, tiny boy. Yeah. And you obviously felt that you, well, obviously you had hit the jackpot with yeah. Waterworks with your dad. Yes, yes. Tough 50s dad. Yeah. So by the time you went to school, you'd already done quite a lot. You'd been in that world. Well, I, yes, I suppose I had, yeah. And, and then at school, we did lots. You know, in, at school in Sheffield, we did, I did Willy Wonka. I did Captain Blackbeard. I, um, eventually, we did Joseph, which was this, it was only a small school and they'd never done anything on this scale. And there's this wonderful teacher called Dorothy Davis who was in charge, who was the music teacher. And she, who we were all, I was hopelessly in love with, and with a few of us were in love with. She was only 26 or something. And anyway, she did this production of Joseph, which was a huge sort of landmark show. And I played Joseph and it was great. So I. How old were you then? 
I was probably 12, 13, 12. So I, yeah, I'd, I'd been, I'd, I've never done anything else. <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd done a lot by, done a lot, but I'd, I'd you know, I'd been involved a lot. And, and, and my mum got all, for that production, she got her friends from her theatre company in to help with costume and stuff. And so it was, it was great. I, I quickly realised what it, excitement in collaborative uh, work, you know, and, and how the buzz of that, I was bitten quite early. Yeah. And then off to Eton. Yeah. It's like, it's like, to- <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I have to read this quote. I have to read I this did. quote you said on Graham Norton. You said, oh, no. he said, you said your Eton education gave you a stigma that is slightly above paedophile in the media in a gallery of infamy. <laughs> I, th- I thought that didn't make it to, to broadcast. Did it not? Well, I'm glad. I'm glad it can it could be aired now because it's such a brilliant line. Well, the public perception of it, of course, is is one thing. But you met somebody. You played Hamlet there. Is that right? I did. I mean, that the thing about that school is ex- incredible access to facilities and to theatre. Right. You know, there was an enormous, wonderful central theatre built in the seventies. Looks quite like. Lasden's National Theatre, but obviously it's much smaller. And then we had a studio theatre and we did loads of plays. Mm. Not quite as many as, I don't know if you saw Prince Harry book, Prince, Prince Harry's book, he said that he wasn't allowed to leave until he'd done a play, which I don't think it was that, quite that militant. But, <laughs> but there was a lot of emphasis on But I like that. As a civilising <laughs> influence. Well, if only that was, if only that was true. Which it explains I don't why he's a human being. Recollections differ, I think, right. on that one. But... No, we did loads of plays, and and eventually at sixteen, I got cast as Hamlet. Did you? Which was a sort of good age to do it, really. But and I've been mourning never playing it since. But yeah, I was sort of sixteen, seventeen with this wonderful teacher called Rafe Payne, who was another you know yeah. mentor who 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 cast me, and and I was not in the end last year, and it was so I was pretty young, and I. You know, I'd learnt that part when I was 16, 17, which I oh. probably, uh, and it, that was an extraordinary education. Did he direct it? Yeah. And do you remember anything that he said or helped you with, with that part? I remember having quite flat vowels, which he kept trying to, you know, he was again, your peak district. Fashion. My, my, my peak Sheffield, district vowels. Yeah, yeah. vowels were, I remember that. But I remember also Will Keane yeah. played Gertrude. Did he? Um, and then this amazing, boy called Saul Linklater played Ophelia. It was one of the most extraordinary performances really? from, a, from a child. And he was amazing. And, and I think Ophelia's madness affected him. But uh, Gosh. So I, that was the sort of, I was rubbish, but I got through it. Do you but, really think you were rubbish? Well, I, I was, uh, I didn't quite, I was too young really to get the, you know, who does get the depth of Hamlet. But certainly at that age, it's difficult to. And yet you have so much for free at 16 that you right. probably don't even know you have. Yeah, that's true, yeah. Yeah. No, I remember the review saying he's, he's engaging and funny but lacks the sort of depth. <laughs> Which you obviously read. Of course, yeah, yeah. sure. At 16, everybody wants to read a review of themselves. It must have been a pretty defining experience, you know, particularly having had all that uh, amount in your back catalogue by then anyway. Having made your father cry. Did your father cry at Hamlet? Possibly not. Uh, well, he certainly came to see it a few times. All right. yeah. well, he, he, good yeah. for him. So then to, on to Trinity College, Dublin. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. Where presumably you did more theatre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lots more theatre. And, and, and the first 
film I'd, I'd ever done, which was a short film by Lenny Abrahamson, who's no, gone really? on to, yeah, he was he was at Trinity at the time, and Gosh, he really we did this film. The guy who directed the Room, the Room, and uh, uh, more recently the that big lockdown hit. Um, normal people, normal people, normal people, normal people, normal people. Sure, yeah. So his first film was a short called The Three Joes, about a sort of comedy about in the sort of Jim Jarmusch style or down by law style of um, black and white and grainy and shot on film and uh, uh, and me and two other guys playing three guys living together and it was brilliant I mean I just loved that so by the time you get to the end of three years at three years studying so English four years four, four years, years. Yeah. yeah I mean you're about 35 at this stage. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got to go off and do another two years or three years at three Guildhall. years at Guildhall three yeah. years yeah, 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 so, so in those days you see you've got grants yeah education. yes you God, do that tell me about free. it yeah, completely me too all and the way through for free all the way through university actually free. not all the way through my Dr- drama school was not well I got drama school because I'd been in I don't remember why but they turned it into a degree course and Incredible. that was all paid for as well and although it, it was it was I remember going to Sheffield City Council to it was a, it was a discretionary grant hmm. you could get for drama school and I remember going meeting this wonderful man who said to me right it's like this Dominic uh, we have a discretionary amount of money to give away we can either pay for you to go to London to be an actor or we could buy a new fire engine <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, you know, there's no contest by the fire engine. But it's then, definitely me. Oh, <laughs> of course, it should be me. Um, but then it became, they turned it into a degree course, which then became a mandatory mandatory uh, grant. So, you know, those were the good old days. That's when... My God, were they the good old days. Mm. Extraordinary. It's impossible to explain to people now that you could, you could not only get a grant for your education, but you could get a grant for your living mm. as well. Mm. You know, that, that higher education was seen to be something Really important for people's lives. Anyway, but my point, I suppose, is having got to this diving board, going up and down, waiting to get into the pool of actually being a professional actor, and having done so much already in your background, did you feel a little bit like it was too obvious in some way? Did you, was there anything else that you was hoping would come along and claim you that wasn't this predestinated course of being an actor. Do you know what I mean? Is there, yeah. was there, did it feel like, oh, I've just learned a trade at this point. You've apprenticed. No, no, I never, no, I had real issues thinking of it as, as, a, as a job or as something that people might pay me to do. It right. was always a hobby and something that I just loved doing. And I wish I could say I, I had other ideas for other things, but no, nothing, you know, I remember a girl at Trinity got into the RSC while we were there. And I remember thinking that would be, the most amazing thing to do. Hmm. Um, but instead, I, I knew, you know, and I didn't hesitate. That got admittedly, I was, as you say, I was about 50 by this point, but I, I went straight to Guildhall and um, where I auditioned for all the drama schools and didn't get in and got into Guildhall eventually. So You felt like you needed training. So I know, no, I, I felt like, I, yes, I needed training, but I needed also to see, was I up to, you know, I didn't know what standard I was. It was right. all amateur by that point, And it was, you know, was I, how did I fare against, you know, other people? And, and um, there, there was never any question of me thinking, oh, this will be a breeze. It was the opposite. Right. It was, right. how do I measure up and could I possibly do this for a living? And I remember Lenny saying, what, how, what do I have to do to get you to take this seriously? Because I, <laughs> I, could, I could never quite take it seriously as a job. It was just, I don't know, maybe I was, I'm just fundamentally unserious, but also I, I, it, it, 
it was a leap to think of this as something that people would pay you to do. Yeah. Do you think you take it seriously? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do now. Yeah. <laughs> I did then. You know. Right. But it was always, I suppose, it was always like play. And do you think that has anything to do with, is this too cod psychological to think it has anything to do with the amateur group, where it was clearly important to everybody that you grew up in, your mum, but it wasn't what yeah. people did for a living. No. It wasn't the focus of their exactly, lives. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So something of that perhaps I, I should continue? think so, yeah. And maybe in a good way, maybe in a healthy way. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think it was, maybe that was it. Maybe my dad, or I, I don't know, I, maybe it wasn't quite a, sort of thought of as a serious job. It was more of a hobby. I don't know. That's that's. I don't know. I just know my dad wanted me to be a lawyer. <laughs> but um, was it hard for him? When no, you didn't, when I don't you weren't think there? so. No, I no. think he was. I think he was. You remember he was the tears streaming down his face yeah. at the Winslow. Boy. And he was a bit of a, a, a monkey, uh, actor monkey, and that he he had a wonderful voice. And his sister, my aunt Gloria, who actually went to Rada, and but again was then had to go home and look after her mum. So missed out on going on but she that they both had this wonderful voice which i you know inherited in some part or certainly a loud booming voice and um and so he was a bit of a monger and i remember him playing me he made records of himself reciting shakespeare in the did he yeah right this st crispin's day and and he was upset he loved olivier and i i loved olivier and and so yeah it was all yeah, we were all, uh, and we put on nativity plays at home every Christmas. You know, there's seven kids running around arguing and flouncing out. And you know, it was all very much theatre play. Now I look back on it. I think How it fantastic. Inevitable. Do you still have the records of your dad? Fuck, I don't know. I think my brother must have them. Right. Well, as long as they exist. Yeah. That's amazing. 78s, yeah. That's very, very sweet. Did you have a good time at Guildhall? Yeah, I had a great time. What did it give you, do you think? Well, it's interesting. Olivia said to me the other day because I, 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 Olivia, Olivia Williams, Williams, yeah, who you've just been playing opposite been, as as Charles, Charles and Camilla, and, and she Camilla said the great the thing that people don't realise about drama school is it's very important for young people to be in a room, bored out of their minds, wondering what the hell am I wasting my time here for? And she was right. I, I taught that a lot at Guildhall, and and. Having to work, collaborate with people you wouldn't normally naturally collaborate with, uh, having to overcome your own shortcomings and their shortcomings to to create something together was was invaluable. Why does she think that? Because boredom is part of the business, and you better get used to it, or or it just it sharpens your desire to get on with it. I think there's a complacency that you sometimes see in younger actors. There's a sort of Entitlement. I, I don't know. Right, right, right. I think that's what she was talking about. The uh, sense that you might have to wait a little bit. That it's not all going to come to you by, by ordering it on an app. Yeah. And also that doing a play eight shows a week for however many months is yeah. really tedious. Right. And, and um, it's a job and it's, um, it's, it's dull a lot of the time. And hell, t- nothing's more dull than acting on television right. for five years. I mean, nothing <laughs> is more boring than that. And I think, I think, and I think in a way that it, it, you know, it's not much fun after a lot of it is, is drudgery, like most jobs. Yeah. Yeah. That business of being able to control your, or sort of be productive with your boredom is something that people don't think about in this job, but it really is a big deal, isn't it? Yeah. It's sort of like cricket 
it's inactivity diversified by activity, not the other way around. Right. Most, well, maybe some businesses and most sports are all the other way around. If yeah. Things are happening all the time and then suddenly it stops. But with cricket and in acting, most yeah. of the time nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. And then suddenly I mean, there's a lot of happens. jobs out there. I remember doing the wine and a cop saying to me, you know, we, right. we, you know, we get paid to sit. It's right. sit around. Nothing interesting happens. Eating and then suddenly it's panic for yes. 10 seconds. And then it's back to right. extreme boredom. And, and we realized that's what we had in common in our jobs. <laughs> Do you still mourn not playing Hamlet? Again. Oh, uh, terribly. I went to see um, Johnny Flynn playing Richard Burton playing Hamlet. Did with, you? And I just thought, damn, Burton was 38. But uh, it was, I remember when I, my last chance really to do it in my 30s was, everyone was doing it. I remember Jude Law was doing it and everyone was doing it. And even to suggest to directors that perhaps I'd like to do it was just laughed at. So, uh, you know, it's a cliche and boring and with Nell and I, but not, not to have played the Dane. But I, yeah, I, I, I'd love to have had another crack. I think. Kenneth Branagh playing it again. No. <laughs> I is think he? he's playing he's do- it a fourth time. Are you serious? He's doing Lear. Is he doing Lear? Yeah. Oh, right. Good. Maybe he's going to... Maybe he's going to... Someone gonna, said it was Hamlet. Maybe he's going to Benjamin Button himself back from Lear. <laughs> yeah. Sir Hamlet. Helen. Yes. I think partly I hear my mother's voice saying you should do Shakespeare and, you know, that you shouldn't be doing this ridiculous TV show in America, which was The Wire, which is the only reason anyone's ever heard of me. And... um uh, and I do have a bit of her voice still in me and, and uh, thinking that Shakespeare is the ultimate test and, and also that I'm, you know, it's the sort of thing that uh, I'm most suited to because it's vocal rather than physical or it is, no, I don't know what. But I, uh, yeah, I, 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 I'd love to do more Shakespeare and wish I'd done the younger parts. Yeah, there's so much time and there's so many more parts. I mean, yeah. he's very generous to yeah. his dudes. I mean, yeah. actually to both sexes, but... You know, there's a real elasticity, possibly because Burbage was an aging, was an older gentleman by the time he got to write those parts for him. But there's, it's never very specific where those great, particularly those great tragic heroes, how old they are. Yeah, I just did Coriolanus at 52. Right. In Central Park for the public. Fantastic. And I was only ever one hyperventilated <laughs> soliloquy away from the emergency room <laughs> at all times. The Delacour <laughs> Theatre is enormous. And they put me in these sort of skin tight neoprene costumes. <laughs> it was like, it was like squeezing an old sort of hair metal band into spandex uh, to be the most dangerous man in all Shakespeare. <laughs> And I practically died, sort of just, just trying to get the costume on and off in the middle of a, a Manhattan summer evening. But I you mean, played was, that at the, the Globe, didn't you? I played at the Globe when I was st- too old for it then. <laughs> so then to add on, it's 20-something years. Right. It felt sort of appalling. But that thing of coming back to something, I understand that you know your, your, your memories of your 16-year-old Hamlet must be a bit hazy, but... Being able to colour these great parts with whatever you've acquired during your life is pretty special. I found it very special. Feeling the distance between my, whatever I was, early 30s self and my 50-year-old self in the same part was a great gift. But this is not, all these things are are there for you. Mm. You know, obviously you played Iago, which I'd love to talk to you about. But, but are there other 
great Shakespeare parts. It's not too late for you and your mum, your mother's promptings. No, no. I mean, Richard III, I'm, I'm you know, but the, part of the thing is... Richard is, III. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but I'd, part of the thing is remembering the bloody lines. At least you had Coriolanus already in there, but... Oh, you could learn the lines. No, I could learn the lines. It just, it's always been a bit of an issue with me learning lines. And, and Has it? Yeah, it has, actually. I was sort of worried about it. And then I remembered, even as a kid, I had... I had, oh. I had well, not as a kid. Yeah, as a kid, I had issues sort of learning lines. So, Have you ever... Now lost... I'm totally senile and demented. I can't remember anything. Can't remember... <laughs> but, um, what's his name's name? <laughs> <laughs> um, have you ever really lost them on stage? Oh, frequently. Yeah, hmm. frequently. What, any ones that stand out? Yeah, I remember uh, I was doing The Country Wife at the Crucible under uh, with Michael Grandage, and there was yeah. a, a wonderful actor there who I remember telling me he had his, I think he was from Lancashire or somewhere, and he said in those days for your sort of 16th birthday, your present from your parents was you had all your teeth replaced, and they'd taken out and replaced with dentures. And it happened a lot, certainly in the north, anyway. Really? Yeah, yeah. And but it was a great advantage to a like a bald man, um, you know, to to an actor in that he he had a different set of teeth every character. And and I found, I don't know if you've done it, but I certainly played Fred West. That that whole character came from these fake teeth I was wearing. And and so this guy had wonderful teeth to play this horrible sort of. I can't remember what he was, but in the Country Wife, Witchley's Country Wife, and I remember him. Uh, and it's happened a couple of times with older actors. Because I was so, sort of often unsure of lines, not really, not through lack of work actually, but from I don't know, I don't know what it is, but that would panic an older actor, and he dried on stage, and I couldn't help him, and it seemed to go on for minutes as it usually does, and I remember him saying, looking at me upstairs in the crucible, so you're surrounded by audience, but trying to look upstage at me and going. Help me. <laughs> and I'm looking back at him desperately and both was floundering. And uh, he then said, that was a Saturday night, I think, he then, he, he then, we met again on the Monday and he said, I got in my car that night and I went, where will they never find me? And I went up to my sister in Hull and I hid out and I said, I'm never going to act again. Oh and they, they talked him down and brought him back. But oh. yeah, no, that was one of the worst. And But it happened all the time. I remember in the National, we were doing The Boy's Inheritance and I had a scene with Julian Glover and he... Um, I thought he dried, and but I had dried, and it was my line, and he kept trying to prompt me, and I was going, "Listen, Julian, I can't help you." You know, and it went, and again, it goes on for for hours, and then you ask someone who's in the audience, and they say, "No, we didn't notice." But, but actually, it was you. It you was were standing me. there thinking, oh, "I was going, poor come Julian, on, poor Julian, come I, on, I can't help you, dear." <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly, somehow the play so, restarts. Like, oh fuck! It's me. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's on, on, often been a problem. Well, that's possibly maybe you should. You, there's more of a reason to do these Shakespeare parts because it would be like the sort of Sudoku for what <laughs> yes. for, for for the aging brain. Yes, it would probably make it into a sort of the Stradivarius of of memory. If you really applied yourselves to... I don't think so. <laughs> ...learning these great parts. All right. Well, just theoretically, what are the ones that you lust after? Oh, um, the big the big Shakespeare. You know, Richard III, King Lear, Coriolanus. I'd love you make to a great Anthony. Anthony would be great. You'd make a great Anthony. Mm, be wonderful. You know, I'm fairly unimaginative in, in what <laughs> I, 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 you know, would love to still do in the theatre. So when you left Guildhall, you well, you you did do, you did some 
you went straight into playing straight. Have I got the chronology right? Into playing Constantine for Peter Hall. No, and my Seagull. first job was at the, the Almeida. I got. I oh, was yes, in, a, right. um, in Sean O'Case's uh, Silver Tassie. Silver Tassie, directed by Lim Parker, and that. And I was playing a Dublin docker. It was amazing. Wouldn't get it now. And. Mm. A fantastic first job, and with all these wonderful Irish actors, and uh, uh, that was the first. Yeah, that was my first job. I fell off the stage. I remember my brother fell off was the stage. in. I was so it was a raped stage, and this girl would go get off me and push me away, and I I bounded kept and kept going into the front row of the audience. <laughs> you just picked up speed, <laughs> and I just remember this deathly silence as I landed. You know, it was a raised stage, and I landed. You know, six feet below the stage. Um, but not in somebody's lap. In somebody's lap, yeah. In, in somebody's three lap. people's lap. And it's, you know, ow! You know. Uh, <laughs> and just this horrible silence and then just hearing my brother's going, my brother going, laughter. And clambering back on stage and pretending nothing, doing the wrong thing, you know, pretending nothing had happened. And, and the girl looking at me in horror, who pushed me away. So... <laughs> Yes, that was my first job, and then and then I did a year at the Old Vic with Peter Hall. Right, but not long after that, I think you went off to join the circus. Yes, yeah. Well, that was a bit like, it was, yeah, not long after. It was, you had a sort of glittering. You had a very exciting young person's career, which I was following with great interest, as you were <laughs> this young shaver from Guildhall who was in my production of, I, I like to think of it as my production of Tamburlaine at the RSC. And then suddenly you're off doing all these extraordinary things the minute you left. And then we were all very sort of rather admiring, but also slightly Love confounded, <laughs> slightly sniggering. <laughs> the fact that you've gone off to Argentina to work with a company called Delaguada. Right? No, no, they, they, I see. no, they, they were in, they were in, in London. I'd, I'd seen them in, in New York doing that. It was an amazing show called De La Guada and, and right. it was, uh, it came out of the clubs of Buenos Aires, a sort of manumission after the military hunter had been deposed, mm. and there was this incredible sense of liberation in Argentina and in the clubs, and and this euphoric, circusy, acrobatic rave. Um, mm. show and I'd seen it in New York and adored it and then they came to uh, Three Mills Three Mills is it called in, in London for the London Film uh, London Theatre Festival and I'd seen them there and I, got, I went every night I just adored this show and then I heard they were you know they were recruiting Brit- British actors to take over when, um, when the show went to the Roundhouse and I auditioned for that five times and got it five like, times five times I mean I you know I'm not I, I don't move very well I'm not athletic and I can't climb ropes but there was this one part which the um, sort of co-director had played himself who was quite a heavy set guy and I took over from him and, and it was much more the sedentary part but it was it was fantastic I had this Amazing time, and I, I you know, I had, by that point I'd just done a film with Sandra Bullock, I think. Yes, but I probably my mum's voice again, but I always felt it wasn't really my world film or or, right. or screen acting, and and that what really got me going was uh, what's the word physical theatre, and I remember seeing you in. Mill on the Floss? Yeah. With Shared Experience. Shared Experience. And Marie Duff. One of my favourite ever nights at the theatre. Gosh, really? Yeah. And and oh. it being very much a fit that, I thought, that's the stuff I want to do. And I remember seeing, um, uh, <laughs> what's the Polish, amazing Polish group called? Oh, uh, yes. Gazin- Gazinice. 
God, and that was the well stuff remember. I really wanted to do. Yeah. And I, but I'm not very physical. I'm not very, you know, I, that's the stuff that turned me yeah. on. I remember that Mill on the Floss really well. You were amazing in it. Oh, and it was such a great you. show. Was it Anne-Marie Duff? Of course it was. Yes, she played the youngest. Well, Maggie Tulliver was split up into three different personifications. Right. There was Helen Schlesinger who played her old, the older one. There was a middle one who's an actress's name escapes me. And Anne-Marie played the youngest one when she was a child. Yeah. Yeah, and that was with a physical theatre company called Shared Experience. With Nancy Meckler. We did it around Nancy Meckler and Polly, Polly Teal. Teal. We did it around India, Bangladesh, really? and Sri Lanka. Amazing. That was an incredible experience. So that's what, so I was always looking for right. physical theatre, yeah. which is what I really wanted. Yeah. And, and, and Delaguada was Well, Delaguada was so exciting. I came to see you do it at the Roundhouse. And I remember you, you broke through, for anybody who has never heard of this, broke through the ceiling. The ceiling was paper, as yeah. I remember it. You broke through on a sort of great big bungee. Is yeah, that right? Yeah. Came down to the ground. So the audience are all standing underneath a piece of yeah. a, a big sheet of paper. Like a sort of promenade production. In the, in, in the you ground. burst through in this extraordinarily thrilling way, like a skydiver coming right through the roof. Picked somebody up. From the audience. From the audience. And then shot back up again. <laughs> <laughs> it, was like, it was a brilliant opening. It was an incredible opening. Yeah. And then suddenly everyone feels, then the vibe really heats up. Everyone thinks we're not safe and who's going to be next. And, <laughs> and make it me. Let it be me. <laughs> and we're all getting soaked. I remember, I remember there was enormous amounts of rain or sort of, you know, rain machines coming down on the audience. And there was just this magnificently wild, sexy, as you say, club, a club sort euphoria. of feeling. Euphoria meets the circus, meets some expressionist you know, physical theatre company. So why after that did you not put yourself in the way of something like Complicite or, or Frantic Assembly or... I did. You did? <laughs> yeah, but I didn't... Uh, I, definitely I went for... I tried to Complicite or, or, um, or even Cheat My Jowl. I, right. I just didn't get in. I didn't get the part. Gosh, this seems extraordinary to... But it, I mean, I, you know, it was... That was great. But that I was by that point, that was nineteen ninety nine. I remember we were a, a, a popular show for millennial office parties. Yes. And that was extraordinary. I realised then that if people don't buy tickets, if they're you know, it's their office party and they've gone in for free, people behave appalling. All the conventions go out the window and what, so that I, show. Yeah, and when we dropped through the when I dropped through the ceiling and grabbed this person, I was being clawed by all these and I think we did a fashion show as well, all these Fashion people clawing, pulling my hair. I was like, what the fuck is this? Darling, get off <laughs> get the off artist. <laughs> wow. No, that was a great, great time. It must have been amazing. Yeah, and then How long did you on, do it for? I just did it for five months. Then it went on to Vegas and it went to Ibiza. Then, they, then there was a, right. a splinter group went to Ibiza and did all the, the clubs there and um, did a thing called, what was it called? Manumission. Well, that was the club called Manumission. And, and so I... I yeah, by that point, I'd, I'd left. But I, yeah, no, that was a great time. Tell me if this is wrong, but I've sort of always felt about you that there's a really, there's a much more, a much less mainstream theatrical sensibility in you than just doing classic plays or, you know, your extraordinary film and TV career. What about that as a sort of career idea in your in your middle days are you are you at all drawn to doing some th stuff that is less narrative 
driven performance-wise, stuff that fuses a little bit of that. You say very self-deprecatingly that you're not very good physically, which is, I find hard to believe. But 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 what about things that are that are more experimental, more avant-garde? I spoke to Willem Dafoe, who spent all those years, you know, in the Wooster Group, of right. course, which is the greatest. He would say the greatest creative years of his life right. doing right. stuff that was very very strange and unusual. I mean, that, that doesn't quite exist, but there's no reason why you couldn't make it exist. But does it appeal to you, or am I barking at the wrong track? No, no, totally. I mean, that's always appealed to me, and that's, that was, I've always loved Stovepipe and who, who were the other, you know, the, all the, the other brilliant theater companies that, you know, sure. certainly Complicity. And it's just, I suppose, uh, I don't know what happened. I suppose I got... Um, well, I had five children. I think that was the problem. But it didn't need it necessarily be a past tense, is what I'm saying. Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I'd, I'd love to go back to that. All, those were always the shows that interested me most. Punch drunk? Punch drunk and yeah, people like right. that. And, and uh, You, Me, Bum Bum Train. You ever see that? Right, yeah. Wonderful show. I, I did do one of those, actually. I did, did you? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I did for a couple of nights. Fantastic. I loved all that. Tim Crouch's stuff. Have you ever seen Tim Crouch's stuff? No. He, he, I, I saw him do an extraordinary piece called An Oak Tree some years ago, where he takes different people up from the, from the audience every night. They're, they're invited guests, often quite well-known. And they, he puts a headset on them. And he has a pre-prepared script that he feeds them through this headset. He's on stage with them. And it's this quite simple but very affecting story of a, of a person who dies. And so essentially what you're watching is someone who has no previous experience of this piece. It's very important that they don't know what the piece is. But you're seeing a person on stage, which could be you, repeating these lines as he's giving them to him. So you're taking away any sense that this is somehow an artifice. It's happening exactly in front of you. You can see everything going on. And it was this magnificent experiment in what we need as an audience. And it turns out we need almost, almost nothing, nothing in the yeah. way of artificiality. We, we, yeah. All we want is the thing to be unmediated in some way by preparation or by being feeling like we're being sold something. And I, I went back to see it two or three times. And they were, of course, completely different depending on who right. was saying the lines. But it was always incredibly powerful and completely unpredictable and wild. I suppose it was that brilliant encapsulation of Mark Rylance's thing about, you know, the audience doesn't want last night's leftovers. Every single night with the same words was radically different, different. depending on the Maybe. consciousness of the person it was being filtered through. I don't know. I'm, I'm just sort of talking about people who do interesting things, but I've always felt like there's part of you that would feel so fulfilled by doing that stuff. Why don't you take a show to Edinburgh? <laughs> I'm serious. No, well, I'd, I'd love. I mean, I I loved him. My daughter's finally persuaded her to do it, and she. I mean, by I'd I'd gone to Edinburgh four or five times by the age of by the time I was at drama school. Anyway, um, had you? As a yeah, performer. we started at, at sixteen. We arrogant little Etonians. We auditioned girls and wonderful, sophisticated London girls, and uh, and we took shows up to Edinburgh and raised money by getting. People like Sheffield Pronto Print to to give us fifty quid and and it was, I, it was that was yeah I loved you know and I and it's been fun talking to my daughter about you know I said why doesn't anyone do that anymore or and we looked up and that amazing incredibly there are venues still 
there are slots still available in in June. And oh, really? I, I was astonished. Really? She said, "Well, apparently, it's not as popular as in your day." But I can't believe that's true. But it, it made me very excited thinking about Edinburgh again and just that whole uh, the vibe of an arts festival. And yeah. I love all that. That's that's always been and circus and and. Um, yeah, the best night was Guards of Nietzsche. Did you see that? I, I did. Were you involved with them at the RSC? They <clears> the <throat> yeah, RSC. they came, didn't they, to do a bunch of workshops. And I, I see, I'd been doing, I did English and drama at university, and so I'd been studying Grotowski and all these, you know, mm. towards a poor theatre and all these amazingly yes. pretentious titles. But so I, I was, that, yeah, that is what I was interested in. And I suppose after what you were saying about, you know, what do we need to make theatre work? What does an audience need? And I think... Uh, someone asked me the other day about if you're in succession, who, whose style of acting are you? Are you? Are you with? Are you with? Who's the oldest? The older one, Kendall? Brian Cox. Oh, you mean uh, uh, Jeremy Strong? Jeremy Strong, or are you Brian Cox or whatever? And and I, I've always felt ridiculous. I've always felt the need for a gap between uh, myself and the character, and oh. and, uh, and I, as I'm, I think most of us do that. That there is that that gap is very important because that's where the audience. So that's the gap the audience fills in, and and if they don't get to fill that in, you know, it's somehow not as good. And and really great playwrights like Jez Butterworth. I did a play of his, um, and he I think was influenced heavily by Pinter. And and great playwrights leave those gaps and don't try and fill them in or solve um, or make everything add up and tie up nicely. And, and it's a sort of difference between a, a, po- a poet and a, a prose writer, maybe. Or, but I, 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 that's very much what I've always been interested in as an actor is, is, or what I've always been consoled by is that you don't have to do all the work. And, you know, right. the less work, the better. The, you know. Was that the case doing The River with Jez? Did you feel like you could be in part of the enigma of that play and not... No, I kept to- saying to him, what's going on? You know, <laughs> you know oh, oh, I think, Greg Jez, I think I've understood it. What, he goes out and he's actually uh, depressed about it. And he'd just look at me like, you know. And, and I remember doing a Carol Churchill play, uh, Cloud Nine, yeah. at the Old Vic, and the same thing. I've always, this thing with writers who, who are, I've always felt bad for writers sitting in rehearsal rooms and watching actors like me destroy their... <laughs> their works and of course the great ones don't let on how disappointed they are but um or how delighted they are or they do they pretend they're delighted and you know jez and um carol churchill always sort of looking at me puzzled that i should want you know having said this is where i live actually what i want an actor is is you know as much certainty as you can get but the great writers don't don't give you any certainty I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Okay, that's the end of the first act of my chat with Dominic West. It was so fun to talk to Dominic. Come back and join me for the second in which we chat about... What do we chat about? We chat about Jez Butterworth's follow-up to Jerusalem, the river in a tiny theatre upstairs at the Royal Court, um, in which Dominic had to gut 
cook and eat a trout on stage. We talk about uh, what Anthony Hopkins told Dominic about stage acting and Judy Dench. What it's like to realise you're in a Broadway flop, his favourite theatre, why he's hung up about crying, and why theatre is a cure for psychopaths. Come back and join me for Act Two. It's really fun talking to him. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Stage, stage, stage door, Johnny. Not a line rhymes with Johnny. But here it is, stage door, Johnny. Stage, 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 stage,